Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, a collaboration podcast brought to you by The Athletic, along with the square ball and the guy with his name on the show. Phil Hay from The Athletic. Hello, Phil. Hello. It's going to be a terrifying week when one week you're not there, you know. One week it'll happen. You can just have a, a load of silence. Maybe better. You never know. I can do a passable Scottish accent if we ever need to, to pretend he's still alive. Yeah, please don't go anywhere, Phil. Please don't. Um, I'm Dan Moylan. With me from uh, the square ball, you heard him then, Michael Normanton. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. On Sunday, The Athletic will be hosting a Premier League awards night. Our writers and podcast hosts have voted across a number of categories. And from seven o'clock on Sunday, we're going to be announcing the winners. Tune into Friday's Ornstein and Chapman podcast to find out who's been nominated for the player of the season. Make sure you subscribe and download The Athletic app to see who wins on Sunday night. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of the 90 day free trial. And we look forward to next year's Premier League awards. Leeds been in it, so this is just the warm-up act. Well, we start on something that's been dominating the headlines over the last seven days and a piece of news none of us wanted, Phil, the passing of Norman Hunter. Yeah, it, it, Leeds had announced that, that he'd been suffering from the, the coronavirus and it was it was very apparent from the early stages that he was extremely ill um, and was, was struggling badly with it. The thing about people like Norman is that you, the average club doesn't have players or, or doesn't have many players with that kind of reputation, that kind of history. And, and even a club with kind of rich history that, that Leeds have don't have too many on that scale of, of genuine club legends who everybody respects, everybody remembers, everybody reveres. Um, and I think there are times when it takes the death of a player like that for you to remember truly it, what his statistics were like, what it was that he achieved, the number of times he played for the club, the amount of time he spent around Ellen Road, how entirely wedded he was to, to Leeds United. And like an awful lot of the, the Reavy boys, there's a, a kind of wider story to this, which is the fact that so many of them came here at a young age and just found that they were tied to the club for for the rest of their lives, the rest of, of their existence. You, you still see a lot of these guys around the club permanently in, in the way that, that Norman was. And beyond that, they are such, such good mates. I mean, one of the first people I spoke to after Norman died um, last Friday was Eddie Gray. And Eddie was saying, you know, we were teammates for a long, long time. We, we played together. Um, I had Huge respect for him as a player. I, I thought he was one of the best players who came through through the gates at Leeds. But ultimately, he was also a great mate. You know, I've lost a, a really, really good friend that I've known for, for well over 50 years of, of my life. And that's always how it feels with the Reavy boys. It isn't just losing great footballers. It's losing guys who the club have been proud of for a long time. Guys who, who came to associate with the club in, in such a big way and who came here at a young age and, and just never left. And, and I think with Norman, it's... It's such a sad loss that it's hard to think of anything that's that's kind of created this outpouring of, of grief and respect since since Gary Speed died um, the best part of 10 years ago. And, and it felt like that. It did feel like losing a, an absolute colossus and a proper club giant. Tell us about your experiences with Norman Hunter then, because you've obviously seen a lot of him on the gantry. Yeah, he, he, he always used to ghost in Norman with about five minutes to go before kickoff. He, he was in the hospitality lounges constantly and, and um, he'd been employed by Leeds in that role for a long, long time. But always dressed in the same way. He liked to wear a big, um, long, dark coat. And, and yeah, with a few minutes to go before the game started, he'd whip up past the press box. He'd, he'd give everybody a handshake. He loved to squeeze people's shoulders and he'd skip up the steps with a, you know, a decent turn of pace and nip past me in Moscow, um, just up towards the, the goal in front of the cop. He used to like to sit right in line with that. And he had this seat where he kind of sat in a little bit of isolation. Uh, but he was funny to watch during the games and, and he was he was very, very amusing. I mean, he, he could be 
fiercely, fiercely critical of players. He was he, he kept a close eye on the way people played. He kind of let it all out. I used to laugh at him having kittens whenever Leeds tried to play out from the back, and and even more so recently. I think as much as he respected and liked the football that Bielsa was going for, it was always that squirming your seat moment when Casilla and, and the defence in front of him were trying to play out of impossibly tight positions at the back. But again, it, it, it's another thing with the Revy boys. The kind of ambition for the club and, and the desire for the club to better themselves never went away. And I did love that tweet from um, Radrazani after Hunter's death, which was referencing a quote from him around the time of the, the centenary celebrations and the centenary dinner, where he said, you know, my one wish is that before I die, I see Leeds United get promoted back to the, the Premier League. And, you know, I've heard Alan Clark say the same. He said to me several times, before I go up to the sky with the gaffer and, and Billy Bremner, I want to see Leeds back in the Premier League and I want to see them competing in the way that, that we used to compete in the 60s and 70s. And you could see that in Norman when he was sat next to us. It was kicking every ball still at the age of, of 76. And we'll miss that. And and the stadium and, and the gantry will be, will be lesser because of his absence. I mean, how well have you got to know him then over the years? Has it been sort of a passing nod and a wink and a smile or have you had conversations with him? Very much so. I mean, I've done plenty of interviews with him, but there are definitely uh, some of the Revy boys that I know better or knew better than, than Norman. It was, for me, very much a case of nod and say hello as as you went past. Eddie Gray is somebody that, that has become a you know good colleague um, when he was working in the media, but a good friend over the years. And, and Peter Lormer, I, I had lots to do with in his role, first as a director of the club, but then he was a columnist for a long time on the Yorkshire Evening Post, so we used to, to speak every week. Um, I, I would go straight his column and, and we'd chat for a good 10, 15 minutes um, in order for me to write that. But again, I mean, that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Every time I phoned Peter on most of the, the occasions when I was on to the phone to him, him and Eddie would be on the golf course. They used to love playing golf and, and people know that, that Peter hasn't been particularly well the last four or five years either. He, he's been struggling with his health and, and I think it stopped the two of them playing much golf. But you'd phone him and he'd say, we're just going up the last and at the moment we're level um, and it's all down to, to this final hole. And they loved the they loved the interaction. They loved each other's company, but they were still deadly competitive um, for as long as they were able to to get out for for eighteen holes. And it it does I do find it intriguing because it's not to say that other clubs and at other big clubs, you know, the the great teams over the years haven't get kept in touch. But I think if you think back, even it, it leads to, for example, the uh, the Howard Wilkinson side or or the David O'Leary side. There isn't the sense of them being quite as close um, or quite as as together still in the way that the Revy boys are and you know that's still the big presence at the stadium it's your Mick Jones it's your Eddies your, your Peter Lorimer's your, your Norman Hunters and you start to realise over time that the club will I guess this goes without saying but the club will really miss these guys when they're gone because they are such good ambassadors and they're so committed to what they do they've never got tired of being there they've never got tired of people speaking to them about what went on in the 60s and 70s they've never got tired of asking the same questions I mean if I've heard Eddie ask once about his goals at Burnley I've heard him asked a hundred times and even though he doesn't think they stand out as particularly amazing goals in his head he will always chat to people about them and, and he'll always go over the, the same old ground and I think that's hugely valuable to a club I think you need that and, and you cannot Put, you can't put a price on what old boys with that kind of stature and that kind of history mean to a club like Leeds United. I mean, so many of us haven't got a, a first-hand experience now as, you know, these players age. Uh, many of Leeds', Leeds fans are going to be a little bit too young to have, to have seen that football team. Do you have a really good sense and a really good handle of what they were like as a team, Phil? I do, but I would never go over the top in saying that I... I properly understand them or, or properly know what the football was like. I've I've watched huge amounts of footage of them and, 
you know, I, I was going through plenty of it after Norman died last week. But I think there's a big difference between studying the footage and actually being there in the moment and being there in the flesh. In the same way as I think in, you know, in years to come, it'll, it'll be like that with Bielsa. You'll be able to look back and anal- analyse the goals and, and the way that Leeds have played under him and, and to see what was what was great about the football, what was clever about the football, where the, the intelligence came from. But you won't ever get that same feeling of what it was like to be in the stadium when Bielsa's football was at his peak. And I think it's the same with, with Revy. You know how good it was and, and you know how unique it was and, and you know that all things being equal, it's highly unlikely that Leeds will ever have a better or more golden era than they had under Revy. But I do look constantly at, at some of these players, you know, Norman, Eddie, Peter and, and others, and regret the fact that you'll never actually get to see them in full flow. You'll, you'll never actually get to, to see them in the flesh. And, and I have to say, you know, with, with people like Eddie, who I've got to know well, I, I know the man far better than I do the player because I'm, I'm simply too young to be able to say, you know, with, with absolute certainty and, and any authority, just how good Eddie Gray was. I know what other people think of him and, and in a lot of ways that's more important to me. To bring uh, Michael and Moscow in, one of the things we spoke about earlier in the week was uh, the passing of Paul Maidley as well as Norman Hunter and doing the entire team justice. So we know now it's been announced that the South Stand is going to be named in Norman Hunter's honour, which we think, I think is a great thing. Uh, how do we manage the legacy then of the other Revy players? I, I spoke on our other podcasts earlier in the week saying that um, what we have around uh, with the Revy stand and and making sure that that stands for that team as a as a whole rather than just the individual, which I think is something Don Revy would probably have endorsed himself. And then bearing in mind the uh, the honour of the freedom of the city, which seemed to mean an awful lot to all the players who were able to to collect that and their family members for the the ones who were no longer with us. I think the the Norman Hunter stand relates to the fact that it's similar to what Phil's been talking about, that the longevity of some players. Paul Madeley had a glittering career with Leeds and then when he finished playing, made hundreds of thousands of pounds selling paint. It's, it's, I grew up with a, a Paul Madeley DIY shop in my town and, and that's one of the first things I remember about Leeds United is it being pointed out that oh, the, the guy who owns that shop played for Leeds United and I couldn't quite work out why he would then be selling paints, but that's what he did. Whereas players like um, Norman Hunter and Eddie Gray, Eddie Gray in particular, never professionally kicked a ball for a, a single other football team. And when you talk about the closeness of, of those players, you do, it is different at Leeds. I don't know if it's necessarily unique, but you look at teams like Liverpool and who's their greatest player. Think about Kenny Dalglish. Well, he'd played hundreds of games for Celtic before he, he moved to Liverpool and if you look at the, the lot from Old Trafford, you say, oh, well, Brian Robson really encapsulates that team. He was a huge signing after playing hundreds of games for West Brom. And there's only really leads where you, you look at a, a whole group of players who started together as that 15-year-old or younger in some cases. And then in the case of Eddie Gray and Norman Hunter, Norman Hunter had his, his little bits with other clubs, but then came back as radio commentator and he's still there now every game or at least he was until recently still there every game um pounding his desk willing them on and i, I tried to add it up when I, I started um sitting near him up on the gantry last season and thinking about this of just how many games of football norman hunter has sat well not just sat but he's been at Elland road he's to play to watch to coach to to commentate on, to enjoy, to endure. And he, he, there's only really Eddie Gray, I think, who 
who has been, I mean, Eddie's not always been treated as, as well as he should by the club, like given absolute poison, managerial jobs twice, sacked twice, and always come back for more and come to mean something to a, a new generation of fans. And I think that's where um, the distinction is made for Norman Hunter and to the point where naming a stand after him feels appropriate because there won't be a single person in the South Stand who you might say a name to them like Tom Jennings, who was the record-breaking goal scorer of the 1920s and never heard of him. But if you say to Norman Hunter, even before all the attention that his passing has, has brought to him, you say at any point to them last season, Norman Hunter, whether the five years old or the 55 years old or whatever, everybody knows who he is, what he looks like, what he sounds like, what sort of person he is, what he means, what his nickname was, how he played, everything about him. So yeah, despite my feelings earlier in the week that I still stand by that. I think it's difficult to do justice to everybody who should have a, a, a tribute to them at Elland Road in the same way. That doesn't mean to say that I won't look at the Norman Hunter stand when we're finally back at Elland Road and think it's absolutely appropriate for who he was and how he's regarded. I think that's the thing. It's, it's very hard to argue against it with a guy who's played... 700 plus games of, of some of the stuff I read from John Howe's column actually on the official site saying he was he was the only player to play in every cup final for us as well in that period. The danger is that we still have Jack Charlton, Eddie Gray, Peter Lorimer with us, Paul Reaney, and all of these people have put in similar levels of service for us. So it's we need more stands is the only problem. But until that until that becomes a problem, you know, I think it's a nice thing to do. It is like the need for a pitch with eight sides or something like that. And and I think certainly when it comes to people like um like Eddie and, and Peter Lorimer, that they're gonna have to be when the time comes and you don't want to talk about this in advance, but there would have to be similar recognition of them. I, I think there's a slight difference with Jack Charlton in that in the, Charlton hasn't had too much presence around Leeds in, in the time since he, he left the club. And, and you know, for good reason, he's had jobs elsewhere. He, he's not particularly well these days, like like quite a few of them. But the appearance is always... I, I always almost feel that you, you get to the point, because it was the 60s and 70s and because these things kind of happened you can be a bit complacent about the, the sheer number of times that, that these players played for Leeds, but 726 appearances for Hunter. And I was picking through the, the current squad at the moment and you've got, you've, you've only got seven players in there that have more than a hundred league appearances, uh, hundred appearances for the club. You've got none with 200, although I suspect that Liam Cooper is going to get there. And I think if Calvin Phillips stays beyond this season, then, then he certainly will as well. But it's, it just isn't ever going to happen again. I don't think anybody in this era or beyond is going to go past the, the number of appearances that Gary Kelly got to before he, he retired. And I think it's phenomenal in number alone, but it's even more incredible when you think that he had to be that good to be in that team for as long as he, he was. Because that team, once they were promoted to the, the first division and once Revy really got a hold of him, they were as good as anything in England and they were as good as anything in, in Europe. And you wouldn't have got 726 appearances for Leeds just out of sympathy or out of obligation from Revy. You know, if Hunter hadn't been up to it, at some point, he, he would have been replaced. And I think it tells you how good a player he was. And that was something that was a kind of recurring theme when I spoke to people. He was this hard man and he did take people out and he did bust Franny Lee's lip. And, you know, that that was his style. But he was he had a beautiful left foot and he was great on the ball. And you know that he was a top player because he was in that side for so long and he was absolutely fundamental in it. And you cannot be in a team like that for as long as he was without being a genuinely world-class player. I would just add on the point on the longevity and mentioning Jack Charlton there. Jack Charlton's debut was 1953. 
And we think of him playing in that team with Hunter and, and Clark and everybody, but he'd uh, quit the game 10 years before they had, because he'd started 10 years before they had, and him with his 772 appearances, the joint record with Premier Phil's right when you you think back of everything that has happened in the world since 1953, and you can take um, Charlton's um, number of appearances as well, and then bear in mind that he missed a big chunk of football because he was doing national service. And we're talking about people from different worlds who still have this connection to the the football club because, I mean, Jack Charlton, although he, he wanted out a couple of times, he never played for anybody else and he never wanted to play for anybody else. But he had the he had exactly what Phil's talking about with um, with Revy, where he had the, the deal where he said, if ever you tell me that I'm not good enough to play in the Leeds team, I'll retire because I'll believe you and I'll trust you and I'll, I'll know it's time. And that's what they did. It just came to the point where they said, I don't think I can keep you in this team. And he said, right, I'll go in there. I'll pack it in the end of this season and I'll go and manage Middlesbrough. But sometimes, yes, thinking about the, the number of, of years that the players were involved with the football club is just, is different again to anything that you can even express with the appearance numbers. Because, I mean, Charlton, I know I'm talking about him rather than Hunter, but didn't, uh, didn't make another appearance for, um, or sporadic appearances for a couple of seasons after that, because he was still a very young uh, fellow and he was trying to get past a certain John Charles into the team. Adding all those together, it, it reminds me of asking them, I asked Gordon Strachan about a free kick that Mel Sterland had scored and he didn't have a clue. And he said, I, I can't pick that one out. And he said, you've got to understand that I watched Mel Sterling score free kicks in training every single day for, I think it was the three seasons they played together. So, so to pick one out in a game, I, I can't remember. I said, I know any time he took a free kick, it was, you know, it was absolute rocket into the back of the net. But I, I, I couldn't tell you. And to think Norman Hunter, how many times he played with, Billy Browner and in training every day. And when he talks about his memories being more important than the, the medals, it's the things that, um, that happened on the training field, behind the scenes, in the dressing room, in the pubs after games, that is an experience that it's not only the experience we had watching them as, as fans or the, the people who saw them play as, as fans had for, for so long, but it's the experiences that they had um, in their personal lives for so long that just, you know, it's it's nice that Stuart Dallas and Liam Cooper are great mates now, but they've got nothing compared to the way that those uh, players grew up together, lived together and went through their entire lives together. There's another thing with that squad as well, which is which is personality. And it just it just flows through so many of them. It's the stories you pick up and these always come. You tend to get more of these after a player dies. But I had a chat with Alan Mullery, who was telling me, the ex-Tottenham midfielder, that he used to go on cruise ships with Hunter and they were paid to coach the kids on board to keep them entertained for these long cruises around the Mediterranean and everything else. And he was telling a tale of, of Hunter absolutely crunching somebody during a crew versus passengers game and, and Mullery saying to him, listen, you know, these guys are paying hundreds of pounds. You, you, you can't do this. You know, you, you've, you've got to look after them. And Hunter just saying, look, the ball was there. And ultimately, if they don't want to go for it or if they're not prepared to go in hard enough, that's that's kind of their problem. And Mick Jones as well. I, I went to interview Mick Jones for a, a book that was published a couple of years ago. I did a big piece on his career at Leeds and... And he was talking about the, the 72 Cup final when they, they were going up the steps afterwards and Mick Jones had his 
dislocated elbow, said his arm in a sling and he was feeling really sick. He's in, in a hell of a lot of pain. And, and they got to the top of the steps and the Queen was there, obviously, because it was the centenary year and the Duke of Edinburgh. And the Duke of Edinburgh just kind of said to him in deadpan way, are you OK? And Mick Jones told the story of Norman Hunter just leaning in and whispering into his ear saying, is he fucking joking? You know, and then I'm just wandering off. And he had great wit, did Norman. And, and I think I often think the same about Charlton as well. I was lucky years ago to, to go to an after-dinner speech that, that Charlton did. And he was talking about his very, very first appearance for Leeds. And he'd, he'd obviously come up as a kid through the club. And so this day, they used to pin the teams up on the wall. And he went and he had a look at the fourth 11 and his name wasn't in it. He had a look at the third 11 and his name wasn't wasn't in it. And then the second 11 and his name wasn't in it. Then he looked at the first 11 and, and there was his name due to play at centre-back. And he said, this this finger reached over his shoulder and he turned round and standing behind him is, you know, the late, great John Charles, who pointed, you know, he's kind of Jack Charlton staring up at him in, in awe. Charles reaches over his shoulder and points at his name in the team list and says to him, who the fuck's that? And it was just like those sort of stories you used to get from them. And they were all self-deprecating and they all loved it. And they just, the, the journey was meant so much to them. And as I say, I think, you know, of all the people, like Dan says, who, who stuck around so much at Ellen Road, nobody was more loyal or more committed or, or more devoted to being there than Norman, with the possible exception of, of Eddie. But you're, you're talking about cigarette paper between them and, and all of these players are, are pretty much on exactly the same pedestal. Well, as we continue to come to terms with the passing of Norman Hunter and we look at the effect that coronavirus has had on the football calendar, slowly but surely we're seeing a creep back towards what looks like a resumption of football. Where are we now, Phil? It does feel that way, or certainly a creep back towards a resumption of training. And I think clubs, certainly at Championship and Premier League level, pushing as hard as they can to, to start to get the ball rolling in that sense. There's been so much discussion, you know, season's been suspended now for for a month or more. And there's been so much discussion in that period about what could happen, what might happen, what realistically can happen, what the priorities are and you know what needs to be resolved first of all. I think everybody is now starting to feel that in order to to push this season to a conclusion, which is still definitely the, the mindset of, of the championship, less so leagues one and, and two, it has to be said. We spoke about this a couple of weeks back, but the feeling at that level is that actually if the you know, among certain clubs anyway, if, if they were to wrap the season up now, it would not be a bad thing for them financially. But there was a another Zoom discussion or whatever they used, conference call between championship chief executives on Tuesday, um, again, just just discussing the latest. And I mean, it, it, as it stands at the moment, the the, uh, the EFL are, are advising clubs to be ready to come back and train on May the sixteenth. The players at Leeds are technically and officially on holiday now because that there is an agreement that that players under contract have to be given a, a statutory amount of, of annual leave every year to give them a proper rest. Um, and so that you know, it's not to say that players won't be training in this period, but if they are and if they're ticking over, it's it's very much their choices to any extra that they do. So they their holiday is due to end two or three days before the scheduled start date for training. I think the only question at the moment is whether or not May the 16th is actually likely to hold. And, and from speaking to people, I think the medical people in the game, your doctors and, and medical staff at, at championship clubs, feel that if it doesn't start on May the 16th, then it will probably start a week later at the latest. But as ever, it's hard to call whether or not that will be influenced by um, things that go on in in the country as a whole, whether that will be influenced by government advice or, or changes to the lockdown restrictions or changes to the the way in which things are, are allowed to operate. But you're right, yeah, it's 
it's hard to feel at the moment like we're ticking rapidly towards a resumption of games, although that, you know, that is in the pipeline. But I think in terms of getting back to a situation where players aren't isolated at home and, and training on their own, we might just be starting to get a bit closer now. I mean, I don't know about how you're handling it, but I'm sort of a bit fed up of it now. The novelty aspect has kind of worn off a little bit. And I mean, like I need a haircut desperately, that kind of thing. But um, it's just daft stuff like the novelty of being at home and around each other and not able to go out has kind of passed now. It would be nice to see some sort of return to normality, wouldn't it? Uh, even if it's just behind closed doors, games scheduled for a month or two down the line, whatever it might be. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got virtually no hair, but I've got enough that it does need cut. So I invested in a, a set of clippers about two weeks ago and discovered quickly that it's nowhere near as easy as it looks when you sat and somebody else is is doing it. But I, I'm the same. The kind of adrenaline and, and the scramble in the first couple of weeks of lockdown when, for those of us with kids, you're getting used to homeschooling and, and everything else, you kind of just ride the wave of that. It, it has subsided and, and you are at the point now where not, not even just football, various things you, you want to get back to. I think with football and, and you know particularly the championship and the EFL where money is clearly such a big factor in this and, and especially at Premier League level where it seems to be about the only thing being discussed they need to be careful that they pitch it right and they need to be careful that it's done in a way where it doesn't look like football is making sure that it looks after itself no matter the, the circumstances and no matter you know advice to the contrary I mean I, I thought it was quite quite interesting following what Nicola Sturgeon was saying up in, in Scotland that Football is going to have to be suspended for a while yet. And the, the, the advice they're having there is that behind closed doors fixtures are not a good idea either. You sense far more resistance to an indefinite suspension down here. And, and there definitely is the will in the Premier League and in the Championship to get behind closed doors games done and to make sure that the season does finish on 46 games rather than the 37. But I still don't feel as if there's a, a fixed framework in place for that. And and. I still don't feel that people know exactly how that's going to happen. It does feel like baby steps at the moment, hoping desperately that they can get back into training May the 16th and then going from there. Michael and Moscow, I've started to come round to the idea now of accepting if they finish it now and we get promoted based on 37 games on you know points per game or whatever it might be that they used to decide it and we go up. I'm coming round to that idea now. Uh, what about you? I'd still rather play out the season, but I mean, a big part of my wanting to play out the season was to actually be there for it. And the longer this goes on, the more I'm starting to accept that that really isn't very likely unless we're going to finish this season at some point in 2021, which by which point the entire industry of football will probably have collapsed. So we do need we do need to just get the games played or decide it now. The, what, what I don't understand from the idea of just deciding it now on average points and points per game or however they want to do it is who continues to pay the salaries for all the players through this period because you still can't resume football any sooner and particularly the lower down the pyramid you go, any club that doesn't have a wealthy backer will presumably have no income until that point. So I'm still not quite sure how that's meant to work. Well, certain clubs are in a much better position financially than others and and one of the things that was discussed at length in the, the Chief Executive Conference call on Tuesday was the issue of profit and sustainability, the the FFP model in the championship. And there are, understandably or or unsurprisingly, clubs in the championship who want to see the restrictions and the rules relaxed on that because of the way that things have changed financially. But equally, there are others who've been very vocal in saying that the PNS rules should stay as they are and the limits and the punishments should stay as they are because what is going to happen is that those who breach it and those who aren't able to keep themselves inside the limits are essentially the clubs that have overspent and you know who've who've gambled on higher wages who've gambled on on big transfer fees and actually have been investing money that that they don't have so there is a definite difference of opinion there and in terms of who pays the wages 
even for clubs who are financially sound and financially stable and, and have a, a very decent income, they cannot go on indefinitely without TV income and without gate receipts. And I think when when you look at the scramble down at Arsenal and, and the difficulty and the kind of political nature of the attempt to, to bring in a wage deferral there, you understand the pressure that is on clubs with huge incomes and clubs that turn over a massive amount of money every year. And once you start to get lower down into leagues, it, it becomes a a bigger and bigger problem and I mean to, to use Leeds as an example if there are no games and if, if they don't go back to fixtures I don't see how they can reverse this wage deferral anytime soon I, I think they will need the players to stick with it until they do have money coming back on and whether or not the EFL will allow these things to go on indefinitely or whether there will be some restrictions in place and I know that the EFL have been discussing imposing transfer embargoes on any club that has agreed a wage deferral with players essentially to stop them spending money on new signings when they're they're not paying paying up player contracts in full. What their their view on all this would be further down the line, I don't know. But I'm absolutely with you. It, it, there just is no money coming into the sport at the minute, or, or not the significant amounts of cash that usually do. And and in the absence of it, who funds the bills? I think one slightly off kilter aspect of of this as well is playing games without uh, essentially without any income if they're behind closed doors. I've got this vision of of certain club owners watching matches and, you know, let's say they run out 6-0 winners and their star striker's got a hat-trick and looking at his goal bonus and thinking, oh, bloody hell, could, could we not just 1-0 will do, lads? Just keep it tight, 1-0 up. And, you know, if the chairman's in the stadium and there's nobody else there, he's got the voice to be able to boom boom across. Stop scoring, this is costing me money. And there's, there's things, aspects like this that, We'll be praying in the back of, of minds of football clubs and then we sling it forward. I've noticed um, one of the uh, conversations today from the coaches secretary telling the, the Commons that he said to the Premier League it wouldn't send a very good signal if they were one of the first major sports to resume behind closed doors and the public at large couldn't have access to it. And it's not just the, the fact that fans wouldn't be able to attend. You would have the millions of people in the, the country who are not football fans looking at suddenly there's, you know, I always say Watford versus Burnley is on the television screen. And then after that, there's the latest news that 600 more people have died in the country today. And they're always saying, well, why can't the thing I like be back on the television if it's okay for football to be on while hundreds of people are dying on a, a daily basis from a terrible disease that's running rampant throughout a country that we can't control. You know, get Love Island back on. I want that. And they would have a, a reasonable point. ITV will be losing money all over the place because they can't get the, the programmes made to attract the advertising money to be able to fulfil their contractual obligations and pay the presenters and the, all the staff behind the scenes. So it's we'll run into that that public opinion of why football gets to be a, a special case quite early on. And I, I don't know if I if I could really find a, an argument against it. I'm not sure why football games should be rushed back, if nothing else is. Because we really like it. Yeah, because I like it. It's a very good point, that. And I don't think either it will wash if clubs try to claim that this is for the fans and this is for kind of optimism or the enjoyment of the country because everybody knows that this is about money. It's about money and it's about the issue of sport and integrity as, as clubs see it, the idea that the season has to be finished. Otherwise, it, 
it's either skewed or, or it doesn't count for anything. But I do feel that there the must come a point at which the idea of voiding the season, when I say voiding the season, I don't mean kiboshing it completely, but of ending the season and looking at points per game as a way of re- resolving the tables without playing any more games. The, there has to be a date at which that starts to be seriously considered. And I know that you know UEFA are resisting that as hard as they can and so you know for the top divisions in Europe and so are the the Premier League and and the EFL with respect to the the championship but common sense tells you that that is going to have to come onto the agenda if they cannot get behind closed doors going quickly and I do think that from a PR point of view they're going to have to handle this very sensitively if they do start to do behind closed doors because it will look terrible for football if it looks like they are ploughing on while everybody else is locked at home um, and they're ploughing on in circumstances where actually a lot of people feel like they they shouldn't be. And I mean, I'm completely resigned now to the idea that even if they play out the nine games, there won't be a single one that, that has a crowd there to to watch it and and like Michael was saying it it's quite difficult to to reconcile yourself with that really because you know I I don't even support the club and but the, the amount of time that all of us have been waiting for this to happen and you have visions of what it would be like if and when it does happen the the kind of piss up for two three months that would go on in Leeds and it just isn't going to be like that and I and I don't know when it happens what the reaction's going to be how how people are going to feel I don't know how how I'll feel about it it'll be Pleased, you know, if if they do go up, but it isn't going to be the same sensation, and it definitely isn't going to be the same memory that it it would have been otherwise. And I know none of these things matter in the grand scheme when you see the number of people who who are dying and the number of people who are infected. But in in the context of football, it is a it's a great great shame. Yeah, one thought I had. You mentioned that the the gantry will never be the same without Norman Hunter up there. But if the season ends and leads are promoted, then the gantry probably will never be the same because it all has to be ripped out and upgraded and transformed for the the Premier League. Those famous floodlights that were supposed to be put behind the West Stand that they've got planning permission for, they would have to go up if we're a, a Premier League club. So it's not just that we kind of, we'd miss out on that moment, but when we do finally get back into Elland Road, if, we, if it is in the Premier League when crowds are allowed back in, it's the stadium could look completely different in in many ways, and those those things are are not important in the the larger grand scheme of things. But to a, a football fan, when you you're thinking you you don't want those changes to happen without you at a place like Ellen Road, where as we were saying, with not only players who've put in years and years, but supporters who've put in years and years and years, it will be a, a, a weird. One of many, many weird kind of little bridges we're all going to have to get across as we kind of stumble and crawl back to something like normal life. One of the issues that's come up in amongst all this and the resumption of football is the end of contract dates. And obviously there's a question mark over uh, John Kevin Augustan's contract, his loan deal. Will he be signing? Will he not? Uh, lots to be resolved there. He's in fine shape regardless of what happens. He is. Um, he, he was actually starting to get close at the point where the season had finished and they've been working on his kind of sprints and so on for the last couple of weeks just to make sure that his hamstring was going to hold up properly and was strengthening in the right way. The club was saying that, that he would have been back in full training this week and actually, you know, if, if there are to be nine games played at some point, if Bielsa finds that at some point he does need an alternative to Bamford or if Bamford is injured or suspended or whatever else, I actually think Augustine might now be in a position to play a part in a way that I, he just wouldn't have been previously. I mean, the, the, the thought of him 
kicking back into to training now, you know, full training now, it's quite comical in the sense that at this stage, had things been normal, the season could have been wrapped up already. There's literally a couple of games to go. And, you know, I, I, I don't think at the end of the Huddersfield game, I would have put any money on him scoring for the club this season, let alone, you know, making a, a, a really, really huge impact. But yeah, he's he's worked very hard and he's in good shape. He's He's got his... His weight down, and and in terms of his contract, I mean, in the same way as Ben White's and and everybody else's, it's a football wide issue. This and and it's of more significance outside the Premier League, where you have far more players who are either about to reach the end of the contracts or are on loan deals, which should technically end on June the thirtieth. And and I think there would have to be an across the board agreement that these would be extended in some way. And and obviously you've then got um, Bielsa as well. You know his his deal is up on June the thirtieth. But I ask about this many, many times um, and, and as often as I can and I get the same answer which is that Bielsa will 100% be here until this is done and dusted one way or the other. You know, he, he is not going to go while it's um, all up in the air or, or while it's all still to be decided and I, I would be very, very surprised if it was any other way with him. I have to say I don't have any fear that he's going to walk away. No. At the moment, anyway. I just hope he stays forever. Uh, you mentioned Ben White there and the contractual issue. We've heard a few rumblings around him. Uh, based on what turned out to be a comical uh, letter written by somebody who claimed to be five, but that handwriting looked far too good for a five-year-old, um, to Brighton asking if we could keep him yeah, for, for just over 15 quid, which seems fair to me. Well, I've got a four-and-a-half-year-old four stroke, five-year-old, she turns five in June, and she cannot write like that. So I, I would I would be surprised. But, you, you know, children advance at, at different stages. Um, I think it was... What fifteen pounds and seven that was offered for him, and and obviously Brighton um, had the um, had the decency to write back and and have a bit of a laugh with him. But it will get serious with White at some point, assuming that the transfer market doesn't completely collapse and nobody is doing any any business. There is going to be big interest in him, and he's had Liverpool on his case right the way through the season. Their their talent scout is Andy O'Brien, the the former Leeds defender who's been watching him a lot and I'm hearing that, that both City and, and Manchester United are keen as well and I have to say the, the more I speak to Leeds about White the more I sense a kind of resignation about the possibility of him being here for a second year I, I think they feel that the improvement he's made this season and, and the attributes that he's got are kind of tailor-made for a, a top six club to have a go if, if they've got the money and to, to take a chance on him and you know they would love to keep him. They will certainly try if they do go up. Um, and there's no doubt at all that that Bielsa has made a huge impact on him. But I think, ironically, the the effect of Bielsa's impact is going to be that he is now such a prospect, and he does look so good in so many respects that Leeds probably won't be able to compete. Is there a willingness on his part to remain in Leeds? Because in one of the interviews he did, and I can't remember where I heard it now, but he did make noises to indicate that. Or is it that the the goalposts have moved because he's made such an improvement? Is there any chance we could see him at Leeds next year? I don't think he'd be close to it. He's he's very very good friends with Calvin. Phil. Phillips, two of them have, have got very close in, in the time that he's been here. And, and it goes without saying that he's well aware of the impact that Bielsa's had on him and well aware that this has been by a mile the best season of his career. And and I think as well, I, I was speaking to, to somebody who knows him who was saying that it hasn't been lost on him, that it's Leeds where he's had his best football and it's Leeds who've kind of taken this big chance on him. And he hasn't really featured down at Brighton. He, he is already 22 and, and hasn't had much of a look in there. And, and I don't know where, what his stance would be in, in terms of staying at the Amex if he didn't feel like he was going to be particularly heavily involved next season. I just think like all things, if you get into uh, if you get into the building and ultimately you've got Liverpool, Manchester City and others offering you contracts, offering you money, offering big fees, it's going to override everything and, and I wouldn't blame anybody who had the chance to go to Liverpool 
um, and decided to take it. They're, they're just in such a great position at the minute. And, you know, he, he is somebody who looks like he could improve massively. And, and you'd like to think that he'd have the confidence to say, if Liverpool want to have a dabble with me, then then I want to have a dabble with them. And as much as I and a lot of other people would want to see him stay at Leeds, you couldn't really begrudge him that. Although I do want him to delete Calvin Phillips's number if he goes to one of those clubs. They must not stay in touch. Good point that, yeah. You don't want um, one going and, and the other following. But again with Phillips, I think if they go up, then surely they'll be okay with him. You, you would think that Phillips will stick around. If they don't go up, then I, I can't see any way in which Phillips spends another year in the Championship. On that happy note, I've just realised my previous question there about Ben White. Um, it had the same air about it as that you know that scene in Dom and Dumber where he's saying so you're telling me there's still a chance there's always a chance there's always a chance part three now and whilst we are in lockdown we have been turning this the content of this bit over to you letting you choose via Phil's Twitter account with a poll running weekly on there thousands of people voting every single week we have three options this time in the bronze medal position Darko Milanic's 32 days at the club with 19.8% of the vote. Second place, the silver medal went to Tony Yeboa, 35.9%. However, the winner, Charlton, the Charlton 6-6, with 44.3% of the vote this time, Phil. So take us back to the Charlton 6-6. Quick reset for anybody who has been living under a rock and can't remember this. When was it? Who were they? Yeah, I always call them the Charlton 6 rather than the Sick Note 6, as they generally became known, just for reasons of legality and, and liable. And actually, do you know, I was, I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't get Milinic's 32 days because there's plenty of great stories there. And, and also, I think with your boy, you, you get, I, I don't mean bogged down, but you, you focus constantly on his two unbelievable goals. But there's there's some great stories to be told about him as well and, and the way that it went. But I think that the Charlton debacle stands out as unique, certainly in the time I've written um, about the club. In what it kind of represented and, and the ferocious reaction to it. And I don't think anything in, in all the time that, that Chilino was in charge. And actually, even in the really fractious periods under GFH and, and Bates and so on, I'm not sure anything quite epitomised the complete loss of trust and faith in the club as, as that particular incident. The roots of this go back to the previous summer. The Charlton game, Charlton away, um, was in April 2015. But it goes back to the previous summer when Chilino had taken over the club and, and had had his first transfer window and had brought in... 15 players into the first team squad, many of them foreign, many of them from Italy, many of them from Serie B level. So you had um, Tommaso Bianchi's, your Mirko Antonucci's and Giuseppe Belushi's and, and so on. And the thing about Chilino is he, he has always had an, a knack or at least in, in, in periods he's had a knack of getting clubs out of Serie B. So he did it with Cagliari um, a few times. He did it with Brescia after leaving Leeds and, and buying them out. And he basically felt that these players coming in would be able to do the same trick. They've been good enough for CDB in Italy. Therefore, the, the transfer to the second division of England would be comfortable for them. They'd be they'd be good. They'd, they'd give Leeds a, a kind of fighting chance of, of promotion. But as we all remember, it became apparent pretty soon that, that they were either substandard or were going to take too long to adapt to the division. And, and ultimately, in the time that they did, the results were going to be so poor that, that Leeds were, were going to be in trouble. So you had uh, Hockey Day there to begin with. You had a short caretaker spell for um, Neil Redfern, which was very good. You had Darko Milinic, who, as we said, lasted for, for 32 games. And then you had Redfern back in as manager until the, the end of the season. And the problem from Redfern's point of view was that he didn't feel that many of the, the players who'd been signed by Chilino were good enough to give 
leads a chance of getting out of the, the trouble they were in. And there was a really crunch moment that came at the end of December in the, the 2014-15 season, which was when Leeds went to Derby and lost 2-0 and had great difficulty even competing in that game. I mean, I would struggle to think of many fixtures in which Leeds have played so much of the game in their own half. They just seem to be constantly camped in their own third trying to make sure that um, a 2-0 defeat didn't turn into a 6-0 thrashing. And Redfern looked at that. I still remember him in the post-match press conference, the way he was talking, the way he was looking. And and I was thinking, they're going to go down here. They really, really look like they're going to be relegated. And his answer to that was to completely rethink the structure of the team, who he was going to use and and how he was going to build the side. So he went to a 4-5-1 with Steve Morrison up top. And we got to a point in, in January where they, they played Bournemouth at home. Bournemouth were obviously well on the way to, to automatic promotion and, and winning the title. And Leeds won 1-0 that night. And there were literally only two players in the side that were Chilino um, signings in the starting lineup. There was Belushi who was sent off towards the end of the game and there was Silvestri. And there'd been this huge swing from... You know, those players being blooded and used and, and tried to actually Redfern reverting to the younger players who he knew from the academy and other players like Luke Murphy, like Steve Morrison, who, if nothing else, he felt like he could trust and he could rely on to, to get Leeds out of trouble. Which kind of led us down the line to April and the point of Charlton away where the club were safe, there was nothing riding on, on this game and then it all kicked off. And how many of them were really injured, Phil? Come on, say it. Well, here's the thing, you see. The game was on Saturday afternoon and on the Friday, we started to get word that six six players, six foreign players, all um, Chileno signings, had pulled out at short notice because of injury. So you had Edgar Chani, who was claiming to have tendonitis in one knee. You had Silvestri, who had been injured in a game against Norwich earlier than in the week. But if you remember, as the you know, as the fallout from this intensified after the Charlton game released that really weird picture of a, a scar on his back, which nobody was was quite buying. You had Belushi who claimed that his hamstring was tight. Dario Del Fabro, um, who'd taken a bit of a knock, Ducara, who was claiming to have a groin strain, and, and Antonucci as well, who'd kind of done his hip or his, his flexor flexor muscle. I went to interview Umbers, uh, Andrew Umbers, who was the club's chairman, as I recall, because at the time Massimo Cellino was banned and uh, by the EFL and, and wasn't around Ellen Road and technically wasn't supposed to be involved or, or running anything at all. I went to interview him the following week and the general feeling was that this was a, a kind of concerted campaign against Redfern who hadn't been playing a lot of these players was out of contract as head coach at the end of the season and quite honestly by that stage was definitely about to lose his job there was no question at all that he was going to go and and somebody else was was going to come in and and that's how it felt it felt like on the Friday there'd been this trickle effect of players saying, do you know what? I'm not going to this game at Charlton. I'm, I'm not going to take part. I'm, I'm not going to feature. Now, when I went to speak to Umbers the following week, and I've dug up the interview because I did a huge long Q&A with him where we got into all this and trying to find out what had really, really gone on. And unsurprisingly, he, he fought the club's corner. He said they were all injured. His quote was, I've, I've spoken to each of them individually and collectively. Individually, there's no question in my mind that with Harvey's expertise, Harvey Sharman being the club's physiotherapist at the time, and our information, there's no question that their injuries can be contradicted. They were genuinely injured. They want to wear the white shirt. They want to play for Leeds United whether they're in the squad or on the periphery of it. If they're picked, they want to play. And they're very upset because everything has been personalised, the loyalty has been challenged, and I'm satisfied that that shouldn't be the case. But how many of them were really injured, Phil? Well, <laughs> Redfern says not many. Interestingly, and this surprised me a lot, when when Sol Bamba left Leeds United, 
I interviewed him and I asked him about it and I said, do you think that this was genuine? Do you think some of them were, were injured? And he said, do you know what? I think some of them were. I genuinely think that, that there were injuries there and that, that some of them were justified in, in pulling out. But I also remember, the, and people will remember, the, the interview with Steve Morrison after the game where he just basically said, I've never seen anything like this. I don't know what's going on and I, and I don't understand it. But suffice to say, this has all been unbelievably weird and we've gone to a situation where at one point these guys were fine and then suddenly they weren't. And people will probably have read, or some people listening will have read the piece I did with Morrison shortly after I, I started at The Athletic. And again, this this was his quote. He said, you'll, you'll remember I gave my opinion at the time. It was odd. Everyone training, and at the end of training, we went in and these guys were all injured. Very bizarre. That's why I said at the time I'd never seen anything like it because it was no word of a lie. The club, for the time I was there, Jesus Christ, it was insane to you lot on the basis of what you knew and you didn't know as much as, as we did. That was the general feeling. And and you see, the, there were issues with this. There were issues in the sense that Redfern knew that he wasn't particularly popular with some of these these players. There were issues with the fact that Dukara said he had a groin strain or that was what was put out. But people in the building saw Dukara vaulting a fence shortly before he came up the stairs to tell Redfern that he wasn't fit and, and wasn't going to be able to play. And I think the general feeling, and, and this was the point I was making to Umbers afterwards, was that nobody believed them. Nobody believed them. Nobody believed the club. Everybody felt that this was a bit of a vendetta against um, Redfern. And even though Chilino was banned, everybody felt that this was ultimately coming from him or, or probably being directed by him. And, and obviously he completely denied that. But he did say in an interview over the weekend that it was very weird. And then you had Silvestri's father who, who posted on Facebook saying, describing it as a silly protest by the other players and saying, and I quote, that Silvestri was furious with those assholes because he had worked hard to build up his reputation at Leeds. And actually, of the six, his injury was was genuine. And I think for a lot of them, it completely destroyed their reputations um, in the eyes of the supporters. And I still remember at the point where Dukara was leaving a, a couple of years later, or you know, the last of them were, were going. People on Twitter saying to me, "It's nice to see the you know the last remnants of that six gone. It's great to have them out of our club." And you know, on the one hand, you have to say perhaps some of them were hard done to, but it certainly didn't feel like it at the time. We had a another source because we spoke to Gatano Baradi for an interview in the, the Square Ball. And we asked him uh, what had gone on with the Charlton game. And he said that uh, a few players had a few problems. They had injuries, but not all of them. Two or three were injured. The other ones had a problem with the manager, so they took the decision. I don't want to say their names because it's not good. So he was pretty clear that that a lot of the players involved had, had done it as part of a, a problem with Redfern. He also wanted to correct the, the impression that he gave around the time because I think Berardi managed to establish his reputation in the other way because uh, the idea was that he was injured, but he went to Charlton anyway. And he said that, um, in fact, he wasn't injured for the Charlton game. He'd just been dropped. So reading between the lines of what he was telling us, I think he was, because he was good friends with uh, uh, with Belushki in particular and a lot of the other players who were um, involved in it, certainly he was on that side of what he described as a, as a big language divide in the, the dressing room at the time. I think the opportunity was there for him to have been part of it and, and made it up to seven because it would have been, you know, look, this Redfern guy is leaving you on the bench. You know, you should be uh, in the team. What are you doing? And he said that uh, um, I decided to go anyway because um, in my head, I don't listen to the other ones. It's not a problem if you're not picked to play a game. It's not good, but I go anyway. I'm fit, so I have to go. It was difficult to go, but it's my job and I want to do my job right. 
he does say that two of them were injured. And I think the, the grey area around the other ones is probably that you can have, there are injuries where you're, your legs snapped and you you definitely can't play. And there are those, there's those strains and there's there's the muscle injuries and the ones where, well, if I have a pain-killing injection, yeah, I can I can play this game. But the, the players involved went, actually, I think I'll leave the, the pain-killing. No, it's it's not right. I think I'll sit this one out. And uh, and that's why it leaves that wiggle room for the, the club to say, oh, no, there's, a, there's an injury there. There may well have been a, a niggle or whatever, but not something that should have stopped any of them from playing the game. And uh, and then when you add it all up, um, Bamba says maybe a couple of, couple of them were injured. Berardi says a couple of them were injured. Well, there's four others, so what's their excuse? I think that's absolutely right. I, th- I think ultimately the feeling was that, that a couple of them were, a couple of them had injuries that, that should have kept them out. And actually, if you're being brutally honest about it, there, there were a few players in that group who wouldn't have been involved anyway. There, there was simply no way Edgar Chani was going to play at Charlton. There was no way Del Fabro was going to be in the side either. But it was kind of besides besides the point. And I always say this about Berardi. I mean, he is nobody's pet. And I I, I think knowing what I know about him now, I'd, I'd have been absolutely amazed if, if he'd got on board with that. But I think as well, when, when I read that square ball piece, it was a great interview that, that Moscow did with him. He kind of got the, the feeling from Berardi that actually he wasn't too impressed with Redfern either and I don't think was particularly happy about being held up as this this kind of saintly figure in the middle of it. I don't think he thought that, that he was doing anything other than what he should be doing by travelling. And, and there was definite friction there. You know, there was a, absolutely friction, not necessarily so much between the players, although they, they didn't all get on great, but there was definite friction between, you know, the foreign players and, and Redfern with respect to the team as it was being picked. And you'll remember as well that, that shortly before it, Redfern's assistant, Steve Thompson, had kind of left in the blink of an eye after what was said to have been a, an argument with Nicholas Salerno, who was um, Chileno's sporting director. Although anybody who's met Salerno and, and has spoken to Salerno can't really imagine him arguing with anybody. He's just a, a nice kind of oldish guy who it didn't it didn't wash that at all again it felt as if it felt as if the ground was being laid to kind of pull the rug from under Redford and say look we're moving on and, and you're being replaced and, and Charlton stank of that as well and I think what the players involved didn't anticipate was how how furious the away end at, at Charlton was going to be and, and what the fallout was going to be as well it was it was well beyond what anybody expected. Chilino's reaction uh, kind of spoke to that conclusion as well because he immediately went to the the newspapers and uh, he said he's not a coward and he's not the sort of guy who tells players to go on strike and he said I admit it looks weird but if the players were injured why didn't the manager inform the chairman which would have been Umbers at the time this looks like a fight between Neil Redfern and the ownership of the club which is not good and then that straight away, Chilino, who is not the chairman of the club because he's banned, is some still finding this way of grinding this situation with Redfern in the public eye and, and making that the issue or trying to make that the issue. I think everybody saw through this who was a Leeds fan straight away rather than what they actually the players had been doing. Except that Umbers then contradicted Chilino by saying that he, he actually did know that these players were injured beforehand and it, and it wasn't the case that he hadn't been aware uh, made aware in, until the last minute, and 
I always remember a great phrase from Simon Jordan when he was chairman of Crystal Palace and he was speaking about his run-ins with the, the Football Association. And he used to say that entering the FA's disciplinary department was like entering their own personal Narnia. And it was a little bit like that at Leeds at that time. You just had to kind of suspend disbelief with, with everything that was going on. And, and it, it, you know, it, it's like this with, with a lot of stories. But when you have so many contradictions involved and, and when nobody seems to be able to agree on anything, you're left with the feeling that your initial impression of what's gone on is is probably spot on. I mean, when it comes to fan reactions, throwing the shirt and refusing to play are the two big no-nos, I think, when it comes to players. If you want to lose the the, uh, the love of the fans, that's one way to do it. And then going back to Mark Hazelwood, the back end of the 80s, flicking the V is never good to do that to the cop at Ellen Road. That's never going to go down well. But um, uh, Michael, what, what did you think of it at the time then when, when you saw this, that the six of them weren't travelling or weren't playing? I'll never, I'll never forget the day I lost my love for Dario Del Fabro. I'd, I'd held him in such high esteem up to this point. I was really hopeful for he'd be, he'd be our centre-back for the next 10 years. It was weird at the time. It was surprising, but also not, because like we've touched on there, the club was a complete circus at the time. We'd had It's hard to remember exactly what which Redfern stint this was, because obviously his, his, his first stint had been after McDermott had been sacked. He, his, it was this after... This is after Hocker Day. Um, it's after Steve Thompson has been, as you say, there's probably another full podcast to be done on that as well when he was he was disappeared, is all we'll say. Don't forget when he uh, he filled in for Grayson as well, which was where the, the do it for Redders era. Oh, of course it was, yeah, when the Bates was after a cheap appointment, wasn't he then? Well, that's the way it appeared anyway. But yeah, from, from this time, it was just like, oh, it's just another one of those things. This is just what happens at Leeds United now. Of course, the players aren't there. And the fact that Edgar Charney and Dario Del Fabro added the names to the list was just like almost a little touch of comedy to add to it because I don't think either of them had, I think Del Fabro played one game. Charney had made a few really dreadful substitute appearances. And the fact they were being added to the list, I think, showed it for what it was, was because they were players who, as you say, were not involved anyway. So them saying, and we're not fit, by the way, was just another way of of getting it red fern. That was one of the real bizarre parts of this, because you did think you would get through this season without having a problem with Dario Del Fabro. And yet suddenly that was the biggest problem you had. Del Fabro actually had a decent game up at Sunderland in the, in the FA Cup, which is about the only look we, we got at him. But, you know, the, there was that kind of flicker and there was a bit of chat about him going to Juventus and, and whatever else, although weird things happen in Italy. And, you know, it, it, it sometimes, again, you, you look at the, the transfer rumours over there and kind of blink in, in disbelief. I can't remember Edgar Chani kicking a ball. With Habibu, I can at least remember a game, one particular game where he, he played from the start. I think it might have been against Huddersfield and he was hopeless. And then the header up at Middlesbrough, which also almost nicked a, a one-all draw in, in what was pretty much um, Neil Warnock's last hurrah and last chance of the playoffs. Chani, I, I cannot remember a single thing about him. I can vaguely remember what he looked like, but I couldn't tell you a single game in which he came on. And in the games when he came on, I couldn't tell you a single thing that he did. It was a truly mystifying signing. And one of those where that old saying, if it looks like a dud and it smells like a dud, it probably is. All I can really remember about him is that he was very big and it looked like he would be good in the air, but somehow wasn't. And where uh, truth is stranger than fiction with Dario Del Fabro, because he is a full-time Juventus player, but you know where he is on loan this season? Go on. You can only imagine he's with um, Chilino. Uh, if, is he in Scotland somewhere? If Chilino's bought Kilmarnock, then you're absolutely right. But yeah, he's... He is. Yeah, he's at Killy, isn't he? 22 yeah, games and one goal at Kilmarnock this season. In the same way as Casper Slot rolled up at Motherwell, it was like a grand Chilino tour through through Scotland. Although fortunately, they all decided to give Tencastle a miss, which was was great. Although the way things are up there, they'd they'd all stroll into the team. But yeah, you're absolutely right. He is it Kilmarnock? Hope he's enjoying the pies. 
For the the standards thing is interesting because one of the other parts I remember from the the Brady interview that um, Michael and Oddie did that as well. Dan didn't come to that one, but the um, the lot of us went. Was him saying that uh, that there were probably ten teams in the championship who could play in Syria, and there were maybe two or three teams in Serie B that would cope in the championship, and that's where. The, the differences. So it, it's if Dario Del Fabro was good enough to play for Leeds, it's then it's it's maybe not surprising he can be in the squad at, at Juventus. The the problem is Cellino thinking that it absolutely you could just map Serie B onto the championship and just go, that'll work when yeah, an actual player who uh, who had played in both quickly realised that was not going to be the case. And Berardi had had some Serie A experience. I think he just about stuck in there with Sampdoria. So he was one of the, uh, from the upper level of, of that lot. And some of them have gone back into Serie A. Silvestri is um, apparently tearing it up for Serie A. Fantasy League managers absolutely love what he's doing for Verona this season. Yeah, Chilino cottoned on to that eventually. And you, you found the next summer when Rosler was in charge, you they were trying to do deals for Chris Wood and, and others. And it, it didn't kind of rule, rule out entirely the, the odd signings like Lee Irwin and, and others. But as time went on and again, you got down to, you know, round to Gary Monk and it started to be your Kamar Roofs and, you know, your Kyle Bartley's and, and Pablo Hernandez's. And that shift away from thinking that you could just pretty much decamp from CDB, come to the championship and, and get promoted. The, the difference was difference was huge. And I think Chilino always says that in amongst many, many mistakes, that was probably his big biggest one at the outset and you know it made me, me laugh there about Chani looked like he could be good in the air I, I used to love the um, the Mary Whitehouse experience back when it was on I always remember them doing a football feature where they were talking about playing Zebedee up front because he was good in the air and somebody saying yeah but the problem is football's played on the ground A Brucey bonus point then for anybody who can tell me which club uh, Edgar Chani is at at the minute Can't get Google up quickly enough for this Don't Google it's, it Isn't he without a club at the moment because he was there was an interview with him recently where he was kind There's of... There's no way you can know this, Moscow. There's no way you can know where Edgar Chani is, even you. Hold on. Come on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the quote straight up and you can hear there's me mechanical keyboard in the background just to prove that well, I whilst, am... Um, whilst I am he's doing that, I'll, I'll tell you the answer is uh, Vibonese was his most recent stop uh, who oh, are yeah. in Serious C. Bonus, a double bonus point if you can guess what Vibonese's uh, nickname is. Without any Googling, it's the Lions. <laughs> How did you know it was the Lions, Michael? That is incredible. Goodness oh, me. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Goodness. Yeah, they're uh, not at a particularly good level, are they? No. 14th in seriously. And he has left them. He has left them. He's currently without a club. And uh, yes, he was asked why he left Leeds to join Pisa in Serie C. And he says that at that point, I needed a project that would allow me to find continuity. And so I decided to return to Serie C. So it was a it was a, a big decision that he made uh, to further his career. He was on loan. He was on loan. They didn't want to keep him. I've got his record up in front of me here and what on earth will we signing him for? He's just, just basically gone around clubs scoring two and four goals every season for them and he's meant to be a striker. He did get managed by uh, Gattuso at one point. He describes that as his... Uh, with him, I lived a fairy tale, a man of great values, whom I will always thank. But his future, he said, I can't wait to get back on track. Uh, but the first thing that, that matters, because obviously this was during COVID-19, is getting back to normal. He's still only 30, if, uh, if we want to take another punt on him. Redfield's never spoken too much about Chani or, or any of those players, but I know that they were shown videos of him and they just watched them and thought, 
who is this guy? But but obviously at the time they were under embargo, Chilino was banned, they were having to kind of juggle loans and I think it was just a case of, of bodies coming in. But I mean, the fact that Chani even played four times for Leeds surprises me now because I, I just had the feeling when he came through the door that he wouldn't play once and certainly with Morrison up front and, and in that system, there was no way he was ever going to get a serious game. When I was uh, looking into preparing for this, not preparing my Edgar Chani quotes, but I did find a, a story on the official site from Neil Redfern saying that uh, Grandian Goy, who's made his debut in place of Calvin Phillips in the game, said he, he, he really looked the part out there, very happy with his performance and uh, thought he could fit in well into the midfield. Well, I'll wrap up by saying this. I think it's highly unlikely we will ever see an Edgar Chani stand at Ellen Road anyway. Uh, Phil, thank you. Michael, Moscow, thanks to you as well. Sunday, we've got the Athletic Premier League Awards Night. Our writers and podcast hosts have submitted votes across a bunch of categories and from seven o'clock on Sunday, the winners are going to be announced. Yeah, tune into Friday's Ornstein and Chapman podcast to find out who's been nominated for the player of the season. Subscribe to The Athletic and get hold of the app to see who wins on Sunday night. And there's a 90-day free trial if you head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next week. 